And so with that, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15 today. And really, I want to pick it up in verse 1. We're going to go through really most of the chapter at different bits and pieces. But Acts chapter 15, and we're going to pick it up together in verse 1. Now, if you are new, first time in a little while, we've been talking about the new normal. That's what we've been talking about. And one of the things we've been praying regarding this new normal, which we're about to walk into, is that this new normal will be better and more God-glorifying than anything we've experienced before. And so uh, we are actually considering right now if one of the things that God has been wanting to do in the middle of this pandemic is, is change the normal in our life. If normal is the thing that he's been wanting to change all along. And so we've been talking about that the past number of weeks. We've been talking about a number of different things like rest. Uh, because it's not really normal for us to rest very much and to remember that he's the one who saves and provides. We've been talking about uh, the original call of the disciple of Jesus Christ to be a fisher of men and to do that by sharing and caring because that's not normal either. What's normal is to either share or care. And so we've been talking about both and, sharing and caring. We've been talking about the power of worship and a unified corporate gathering because, again, none of these things are really normal today. And so I want to keep going talking about this new normal that we're about to walk into, specifically as it relates to the unity that you and I have as a body of believers here at Dallas Bible Church and connected to other believers all around the world. Again, because unity is not one of these things that's very normative today. I mean, this past week I was reading an article uh, that was all about the history, uh, all about the history of division in the United States, in the church in the United States. And it was talking about how there's nearly 2,000 different denominations in America today. And when I was reading this article, like, you got to understand, we're not talking about petty divides either. Uh, we're talking about very, very serious things. We're talking about churches that have, that have formed because they wanted to use rattlesnakes in their worship services. I mean, that would be problematic if we brought that in here at DVC, would it not? I mean, that would be, I'd get a few emails about that. There'd be some of you guys leaving if we did that. That would be a major, major deal. I mean, some churches are all about politics and endorsing certain candidates, which you and I may find repulsive, not really agree with or anything like that. I mean, some churches are breaking off about theological matters, things like the authority of God's word, the inspiration of scripture, the doctrine of salvation, justice matters, and the definition of social justice and how important that is in our worship and in our practice as believers today. We're talking about the definition of marriage and gender and morality. And so we're, again, we're, like, we're not talking about petty things. We're talking about really, really big issues that matter a whole lot. I mean, even this past week, like someone sent me this picture about the pandemic, and I thought it was absolutely hilarious because this is our reality today. You want to know how divided we are? Let's talk about the pandemic. And I'll just ask you the question, hey, what do you think about how things have been handling, how things have been handled? I mean, this perfectly illustrates what's going on, right? I mean, some people think the whole thing is a hoax, and some people think that everybody's dying tomorrow. Right? Like that, that, that's what we talk about. Like some people are saying, hey, you have to open up everything right now, otherwise you're living your entire life by fear. Other people are kind of going, you never have to, you never open up again. Otherwise, you're, you're completely being irresponsible. I mean, we're all over the map in a conversation about the pandemic. I mean, let me just ask you a question about like George Floyd. I could throw that name out there just from this past week and ask you your opinions on the matter. Church, and you're going to see how divided we are even within the body of Jesus Christ. And so here it is, church, like how do you and I walk in unity today when there are so many different things in the, in the world that can, uh, that can be dividing our attentions, there's so many different opportunities to divide us right now. I think that's the question that our passage is going to help us with today. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, and I want to pick it up here in verse 1. But again, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, it's important to understand that the book of Acts is a transitional book. 
Like that's what's going on. It's going to take us from life underneath the old norms of the old covenant, and it's going to bring us into life under the new norms of the new covenant. That's what's going on, right? It's going to be taking us from life under the law in the Old Testament to life with Jesus Christ in the Gospels and to life with the Holy Spirit in the rest of the New Testament. And so when you read the book of Acts, like, expect a lot of change. That's what's taking place. It's all about transition. Jesus has ascended, which we are honoring today. This is Pentecost Sunday. Jesus has already ascended. 50 days later, the Holy Spirit has come in, birthed the brand new church. And so this is, there's a lot of change taking place in the book of Acts. And one of the changes that's caused a whole lot of disruption is the inclusion of the Gentiles in the covenant community of believers here in the rest of the New Testament. And so what's going on here, we read about it in chapter 10, but essentially Peter has this vision uh, from the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles are now included in the body of believers. And it doesn't seem that unusual for you and me as because we are Gentiles, and this is all we've ever known. But you have to understand that back then, Jews and Gentiles were not friends. Like, they were not friends. Like, the, the seeds of rivalry and racism go back to the very beginning. It was an incredibly divided world. It would be like God putting Aggies and Longhorns together on the exact same team all of a sudden and saying, hey, you guys work it out, right? So, like, there's not going to be a whole lot of peace at the very beginning. There's going to be a lot of difficulty as these two groups, which really Gentiles are everybody who are not Jews, but as these two people groups are coming together and becoming one brand new fellowship. And so beyond that, like, the Jews are the only ones who have a history with God. And so they're the ones that had the covenant in the very beginning. They're the ones whose forefathers they honor. They're the ones who knew the traditions. They're the ones who knew the right ways to worship. And the Gentiles didn't know any of these things. Besides that, they probably didn't even care about them a whole lot because all they knew about was the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that he came to bring. And so you can see where some of this tension is going to be building. It's exactly what we're going to see here in chapter 15, right? There's, there's all these questions. It's about 11 years after the Gentile inclusion. Paul's on his first missionary journey. And uh, really, that's when the church begins to deal with some of the tension that's rising up in the middle of their fellowship. And so here's how the entire thing unfolds, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Some men came down from Judea, and they began teaching the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so that's the issue that's creating all the tension here in the church, right? It's the question of, okay, how do we treat the Mosaic law now that we're under a brand new covenant? How, do, how does one be saved? Do, do Gentiles need to observe the Mosaic law? Do they need to be circumcised in order to be saved? Or is there some other, or is it really by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone, right? That's the big tension. So again, we're not talking about petty debates here. We're not talking about people that are just like, that are just holding on to things that they really like. We're talking about matters of salvation. It, 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 are you saved by grace through faith, or do you need to hold on to and cling to some other parts of the law in order to be saved? Okay, and so, and so in verse 2, it just simply says that they fought about it. They had a fight about it. And it says, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, it says that the brethren decided that Paul and Barnabas, as well as a few other people, they should go to Jerusalem and talk to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. And so the first thing I want to draw, draw to our attention is just to simply to say, like, unity is not the same thing as the absence of conflict. 
right? There's conflict all over this thing. And unity, as we think about unity in our body, it's not the absence of conflict. Keep in mind that the same Paul who told the Corinthians uh, to have no divisions among you, uh, to be united in the same mind and united in the same judgment, united around the gospel, think the same way about the things of God, be united in the way that you judge things and the things the way that he calls you to think and the things that he calls you to do. He says, aim for restoration in 2 Corinthians 13. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live at peace with one another. That same exact Paul who said all those things is the same one who's here and he's fighting here in this text. In other words, church, like as valuable as unity is, it's not the highest value, right? And we have to understand that like as valuable as unity is, it is not the highest value in our church. I mean, Peter, Paul, and John at different times, they're all going to talk about the importance of casting out false prophets in our midst. Anyone who teaches anything other than salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. In other words, like church, there are some things that are worth fighting for, right? And and the purity of the gospel is one of those things because it's exactly what Paul says we need to be united around. Our unity comes from being in submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that he's called us to do. That's what our unity is found around. And so like there's some things worth fighting for. And of course, gospel purity is going to be one of those things. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is going to talk, he's going to say, yeah, personal purity, like the, the purity of, the, of the, the witness of the church, like that's worth fighting for too. He's going to say, you need to confront an unrepentant brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Why? Because the affirmation of sin or else the silence towards sin, it's that damaging to your purity and the credibility of our gathering. And so he says, confront it in brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul's going to talk about divisiveness, and he's going to say, as for the person who stirs up division in your body, like after warning him once and warning him twice, have nothing more to do with that person. And we're not talking about just somebody who says something that you may not like. We're talking about a person with a spirit of division in there who does not agree with the doctrine of, of Jesus Christ, does not agree with the gospel, who is creating dissension and has evil motives in their heart. He's saying, have nothing to do with that person. Warn him once, warn him twice, and be done with the whole thing. I mean, Proverbs is going to talk about justice and say that this is our duty to speak up for people who cannot speak for themselves, to speak up for the rights of all who are destitute, and to speak up and to judge fairly and to defend the rights of the poor and needy. In other words, church, like it is our responsibility as followers of God and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to advocate for people in need, to use our voice for people who do not have a voice or whose voices are not being heard. Isaiah is going to put it like this. He's going to say, learn to do good. Seek justice. Don't run from it. Don't bury your head in the stand. Like, don't pretend that everything's fine just because you're not talking about it. Like, don't ignore the headlines and the news. He's going to say, correct oppression. Don't be passive about it. Like, don't be silent about it when you're reading, uh, when you're reading about George Floyd in the news. Like, don't be passive about this thing. He's going to say, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. In other words, church, like, we're not to be blind to injustice that's going, on in the round, that's going on in the world around us today. Like, we don't make it a political conversation and immediately minimize these very real things that are taking place around us all over the place. We don't make light of compassion. We don't make fun of compassion. Like, we use the voice that he's given us and we speak up. I love the way Martin Luther King Jr. talks about this, but he says, in the end, he says this, we're going to remember not the voice of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. I mean, church, we have to understand, like, evil spreads in the fuel of our silence. Like, we've got to understand, like, that's what takes place. Evil spreads in the fuel of our silence. I mean, think about some of the things that we read about all the time. I'm thinking of Mary DeMuth, a friend, a woman, an author who came to our church and spoke not long ago, abused by leaders in her church. 
and then told by different leaders in that church that she needed to remain silent so as not to disrupt the unity in their church. I'm thinking about Rachel Denhollander. Exact same thing took place. She was one of the first people to expose Larry Nassar in the U.S. gymnastics scandal. She was ripped apart by leaders in her own church body for being disruptive and a pot stirrer in her church body simply because she was exposing injustice that took place at the hands of people that other people thought was beloved. I'm thinking about Leonce Crump, this fantastic pastor over in Atlanta, Georgia. Our staff went to a Right Now conference not long ago and we were listening to him speak, but uh, he's a pastor of a very diverse gathering of believers there in Atlanta, Georgia, but he was talking about how his entire church split the day that he started talking about racial injustice in the world today, he's a black pastor out there, very diverse church body. And we're not talking about the kind of inflammatory language that you might hear sometimes that says, hey, everyone's a racist, everyone's going to hell. I, 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 we're not talking about that kind of thing. We're talking about very simple things like, hey, what happened to George Floyd this past week is horrific. Like, racism is unjust. It is not right. And we need to speak about some of these things. And what he talked about is nearly half of his church left the moment he started talking about just a little bit of racial injustice that continues to persist in the world today. So I praise God there has been progress since the 60s. However, he's saying, hey, church, we haven't arrived yet. We haven't arrived yet. Like, well, we're not there yet. We're not operating in unity. There's still more work to be done. And nearly half the church takes, nearly half the church takes off and they leave right there. Church, like what I'm saying here is that there are some things that are just worth the fight. There's some things that are worth the fight, like gospel purity is worth the fight. Personal purity within our church body, like that's worth the fight. A spirit of divisiveness in someone here that's going to divide what we're doing underneath the covering of the gospel of Jesus Christ, like that's worth the fight. Matters of injustice are absolutely worth the fight. I mean, church, we are Protestants today because Martin Luther saw a problem in the church and he decided to fight. The gospel is in closed countries today because missionaries decided to fight against that oppression and smuggle in Bibles into some of these closed areas. Church, like some things are just worth the fight. Okay, and so I don't want us to be confused when we're talking about unity here. Like we're not talking about passivity. We're not talking about enabling sin or ignoring injustice. Like we're not talking about ignoring very legitimate things that took place with your children for the sake of unity and for the sake of not exposing someone that you absolutely loved. We're not talking about those kinds of things. We're simply talking about learning to deal with very, very real problems in a God-glorifying way first that hopefully brings about peace and unity in the end. I mean, it's exactly what we see that's taking place here in this text. I mean, there's a very legitimate matter of doctrinal debate that's going on here, and they're not able to resolve it themselves. And so they do a very wise thing. They decide to take it to the elders the apostles, other trusted believers and stuff, and they go there and they ask for a little bit of help. And so that's what they do. They decide to meet up with the apostles, the elders in Jerusalem, for what's going to be known as the Jerusalem Council. And they're going to go there to talk about the nature of salvation and whether or not it is necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised and observe the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And so we read about that in the following verses. And it says that they come together in Jerusalem. And then in verse 7, after a lot of deliberation and debate that takes place, Peter stands up with a little bit of resolve. And he essentially makes two arguments for how you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt salvation really is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. The first argument that he makes is, well, okay, the Holy Spirit came in response to genuine faith. 
We see that in verse 7 when he's talking about Cornelius, and he goes, look, all I did was preach the gospel to these Gentile men and women. Like, all I did was preach the gospel. Like, they responded in genuine faith, and God who knew the genuine nature of their heart and whether or not it was real faith, he's the one who gave them the Holy Spirit. And, and like they were cleansed by faith, just like us. That's what he's saying right there. That's it. Like they didn't have to clean up in order to receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't have to give up bacon, right? They didn't have to give up bacon or, or be circumcised or even have a lifetime of righteous deeds, perfect obedience to the law in order to discern whether or not it was genuine, legitimate faith to begin with. All they did was come to Jesus Christ in genuine, legitimate faith. The Holy Spirit descended and fell upon them, affirming that they are included in the new covenant of believers, so that's the first argument that he, that he makes. The second argument is going to be a little bit more practical here, but he's essentially going to say this. He's going to say, look, guys, like the law was never able to save in the first place. Like the law was never able to save in the first place. So why would we heap more law on them right now? That's what he says in verse 10. He's going to ask this question. He's going to say, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, like we've never been able to keep the law. Our fathers were never able to keep the law. Like we were, like, if anything, the law just showed us how depraved we are and how much in need of God's grace we are. So why would we go and heap more law upon these Gentile believers? It makes no sense. And so he wraps it all up in verse 11, and he simply concludes this. He says, but here it is. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that they also are. And quite honestly, church, this is where it's going to get really, really messy because here it is. If grace is the standard of salvation instead of law, then what that means is that Jesus is going to approve of all kinds of believers in our fellowship that you and I may not approve of. It means that we're all not going to look the exact same. Like people, we're talking about Jesus approving of people who do not hold the exact same moral convictions on every single issue that you do. We're talking about people who don't vote like you do. We're talking about people who don't cheer for the exact same team as you do. Church, we're talking about heaven being filled with brothers and sisters, people all around the world. We're talking about forgiven criminals and forgiven saints being included in the same family of God. We're talking about conservatives and liberals. Like we're talking about Protestants and Catholics, people that you like and people you had to block on social media because you couldn't stand their politics and you can't stand how they practice their faith. And of course, church, you got to understand, like, we're not just talking about future tense heaven. I mean, John's going to say right now, we are the family of God. As much as, as many as have received him to them, he's given the right to be called children of God. In other words, like right now, church, that's who we are. We are a family. When we gather together in this room, um, when we come together as a local gathering, that's who we are. We are a family of believers, brothers and sisters in, Je in Jesus Christ complete with the crazy uncle who gets drunk at the wedding, spouts off all kinds of nonsense over there. But church, like that's who we are. We are family. We are absolutely family. It's what Philip Yancey calls the scandal of God's grace, that God would choose to love a people, that God would choose to gather and unite a people that you and I never would. And so here it is. I, I, I get the desire for same. I get the desire to control everything through legalism. Like, it'd be great if we always looked the same, we practiced the same. Can you imagine what it would be like if we liked the same music, if we worshiped the exact same way? We had the exact same convictions about how to apply how we do things we call the church. Like, can you imagine if we thought the exact same way about how to handle a global pandemic right now? Like, like same would be incredible. But here it is, church. With grace comes diversity. And with diversity comes a giant mess. Diversity can get incredibly messy, which is exactly why you and I have got to be able to, we've got to be people who are able to give grace. And so James comes in and he shows us how to go and how to fight with grace. 
After, Peter, after affirming what Peter has just said, he goes in verse 15, he says this. He says, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this thing. In other words, Peter's right. Salvation really is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. Verse 19, he says, therefore, it is my judgment that we shouldn't make it hard for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Don't you love what he says right there? I love that attitude in James, or um, I love that attitude in James right there because he's, just, he's not thinking about penance. Like he's not thinking about sticking it to the Gentiles that they've been in opposition with for so many years. Like all he's thinking about right here is the good of the Gentiles. Here's this brand new group of people who've come into brand new faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All he's thinking about is the good of the Gentiles, the glory of God, and then not making it hard for them to understand his grace. Church, like that's what it looks like to fight with grace. Like you consider the good of the other. You don't just think about yourself. You consider the good of the other and you don't make it hard for them to see grace. Like that's what it looks like to have unity in our body. Like you consider the good of the other. You lift your eyes to the gospel. You fixate upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You look to, to the good of the other. You, you consider the elderly. You consider the poor. You consider the minority. You consider the sick. You consider all kinds of people in this fellowship that are not you, and then you do things that don't make it hard for those people in the watching world around you to see and understand God's grace. I mean, I'll tell you, one of the things that's always shocked me is the number of people that I talk to today that say, you know what, I grew up in the church, but it wasn't until much later on in life that I finally understood the gospel and understood grace. Like, I've never understood that a whole lot of times. Like, how in the world uh, uh, you could be in a church or how in the world a church can function and not be screaming at the rooftops like the, the, the beauty of God's grace, that God in his infinite love would send his son Jesus to come and, and to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we were supposed to die, to wash us completely clean, clean of our sin, to be forgiven and set free. Like, that is grace. It is undeserved favor. It's never made a whole lot of sense how we can grow up in an environment there. And that's not the thing that we take away. Yet here we are. For so many years, like grace is the thing that keeps flying over our head. Here's what I think happens so many times. When you and I grow up in a home, or we grow up in a religious environment, maybe, maybe it's a church or something like that, and the only thing that we hear is law, don't do this, don't do that, don't drink, don't smoke, don't go to parties, don't look at porn, don't mess with a boyfriend or girlfriend, don't listen to this kind of music, be home by 10, don't watch R-rated movies, do this, don't do that, when all you hear about is law, 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 work, work, work in order to be approved by God. Church, it makes it kind of hard to understand that those things don't save you in the first place. I mean, church, like when you grow up in an environment, be it a home or a church, that is better known by the things that they are against rather than the things that they are for, it makes it kind of hard to understand God's grace. Like when you grow up in a home or a church that does not have compassion and cannot identify with the plight of the needy, it makes it kind of hard to understand God's grace. And so it's not that grace is not talked about a whole lot. It's just that grace gets drowned out by so many other conflicting messages. And it's exactly what James is talking about right here. He's saying, church, like, don't behave in such a way that makes it hard to see grace. Don't live in such a way that makes it so hard to understand what this grace is that you're singing about, that you're talking about. Like, church, don't make it hard by thinking politically more than you do biblically. Don't make it hard by thinking like your favorite talk show pundit, your favorite uh, political outlet rather than sounding more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make it hard by thinking more traditionally than you do biblically. Don't make it hard by minimizing a human life just because they're old and we're probably gonna die in the first place. Don't make it hard by minimizing a human life simply because they're unborn. 
Don't make it hard by minimizing a human life simply because a minority, they were a minority and shouldn't have been running from the police in the first place. Like, if we're going to be a people of grace, we've got to be a people that freely give out that grace. We've got to be people who don't just value compassion, talk about compassion, sing about amazing grace, and aren't able to give out that kind of grace. We've got to be a people that walk this out every single day and celebrate it as one of our highest values. Like we've got to be a people that consider the good of another. We're not fixated upon ourselves. We're looking into the congregation, and we're looking into the community around us, and we're saying, what is going to be best for that person so that they can come and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they could be saved, they could be redeemed. Church, like that's what it means to to fight with love and to fight with grace. I mean, look what he says next in verse 20. I mean, he's just said, hey, okay, let's not make it difficult for them to turn to God by adding law. But then he says this, I love this. He says, instead, we need to write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What in the world is that about? I mean, I mean he just said, okay, let's not make it hard. Uh, let's not make it hard on them by insisting on law. Uh, but now we're gonna ask you to follow certain parts of this law. Like, anyone else confused by that? I mean, let me ask you a question right here, right now. I, I, don't they have the right as Gentiles to eat whatever kind of meat they want? Isn't that their right? Isn't that their right to be able to eat the things that they want? If they want to deal with blood, they can deal with blood. Isn't that their right? Of course it is. Nevertheless, here's the tension in verse 22, 21. It simply says, The law of Moses has been preached in every single city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. In other words, like he's asking them to consider the other person too and to not make it hard on the Jews either. In other words, like what we're looking at here is this ministry of deference. Like that's what we're talking about. It is this beautiful picture of one person choosing to give up some of their rights and deference to another. Like that's what's taking place right here. Jews are deferring to Gentiles because they're not asking them to observe the entire law. Like Gentiles are deferring to Jews because they're recognizing that some things, hey, they really are sinful before God. In my ignorance, I was going this way. However, now that I'm in Jesus Christ, I understand there's some things that I was doing that were absolutely sinful before God. Things like sexual immorality, meat contaminated by idol worship. But at the exact same time, they're also realizing that some things that they were doing was just really, really hard for their brand new Jewish brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to be around. Things like blood, things that they've always considered a defilement before God. And so they defer to one another, church, because that's what Christians do. We defer to one another. In matters of preference, we give deference. Like, it's what we do, church. I mean, James is going to say this a little bit later on. He's going to say, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And I want you to notice how many times he says the word you. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, and so you quarrel and you fight. Like, you notice how many times it said the word you? Point is, church, like if you want to have unity, it can't always be about you. It can't always be about you, especially in the middle of a pandemic, church. It can't just be about you, and it can't just be about me. It can't just be about my preferences, the things that I want right now. Church, I'll tell you right now, like, I can't wait to be back. I say that every single week. I, I want to be back together again. I long for the old normal in, in many different ways. Like, I long for that. Like, I want to see faces again. I want to hug necks. I, I want to not preach to an empty church and Jeff every single week right here, right? Like, but here's the deal. Like, church, it's not just about me. It's not just about me. It's about you. It's about a very real virus that does pose a threat, even if it's not as extreme or as bad as first predicted. It's about a very diverse community of believers here, some of which are risk takers and some of which are not. Some of which are vulnerable, some of which are not. Some of which think this is a big deal, some of which think it's, an, it's, it's a hoax. 
It's about a community around us that is watching what we do, and they're going, okay, I want to know if they actually care. I want to know, if they, I want to know if, they, if they actually are able to give out this grace that they sing about all the time and they say is so amazing. And so here it is, church, like if I need to show a little bit of deference and wear a mask from time to time or, or not be the fastest to open up our gathering back again, church, like I'm okay with giving deference because deference is what we do. And it matters the preference, church. We show deference. That is the Christian way. Paul's going to say it in 1 Corinthians 9. He's going to say, though I am free and though I belong to no one. In other words, like I have the right to do a whole lot more than I'm willing to do right now. Though I am free and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win as many people as possible. That's his fixation. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God in his infinite love sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and to die for us, that the world may know him and be saved. And so that is my fixation. I want to know what it's going to take to win as many people as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those who were under the law, I became like one under the law, even though I myself am not under the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I may save some. Church, like that's what we do. It matters of preference. We give deference. Church, like we do whatever it is that we can do to help people know God's grace. I mean, it's Philippians 2 when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value other people as more important than yourself. Like don't just look out for your own interests, he says, but each of you look to the interests of other people. In other words, church, like when every single one of my black pastor friends are saying that there is an enormous problem in our country today, and I may not understand it because it's not my personal experience, it means that I'm looking at their interests, and I'm entering into their interests, and I'm listening to the things that are going in, and I'm saying, you know what, I want to understand the pain. I want to understand the problems in the world. And in as much as I see these things, that I'm going to go, yes, it is a problem. This is injustice. This is a problem in the world today. We enter in. We don't just look out for our own interests, the things that only touch my world. We care about the things that are going around here, the experiences that I may not have. In a marriage, you care about the other person. You give deference to the other person. It's the reason I've watched Little Women probably five times in my life. I hate that movie. I've seen it like 8,000 times because my wife loves that movie. But that's what you do for someone that you love. You give them deference. You say, it's not just about what I want on Friday night. It's not just about what I want right now. It's about you so much of the time. And I'm going to lay down my rights and I'm going to do what's best for you that God can be glorified in the end. I mean, church, it's Jesus in verse five when it says, have the exact same mindset as Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own personal advantage. Rather, God made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. In other words, it's like deference is a gospel matter. Deference is the way of Jesus. It is the gospel, church, that God and his infinite love and his infinite wisdom and his infinite power and his infinite might and the fullness of his deity would give up his rights as God in order to suffer and die upon a cross for the long-term good of another. And church, what James is saying right here is let's not make it hard for people to get grace. Let's not make it hard for people to get grace. In matters of preference, let's choose deference. Let's fix our eyes upon Jesus, upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God would lay down his life for the flourishing of us all. And let's follow in that example. Let's not make it hard because you're clinging to preferences. Church, like that's just what we do. It's the way of the Christian. I mean, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories of the early church is written by a guy named Aristides. 
Uh, but he's spying for the Roman emperor in the second century, and he's trying to gain intel on all these on the early Christian gathering there. And I love what he writes about their gathering. And, and what I love about this letter, this is just before he converts himself. But he's writing to one of the Roman emperors, and he says, It is the Christians, O emperor, who seem to have found the truth. They believe in one God, the creator of the universe. They have his commandments imprinted upon their hearts. And I want you to notice how much deference he describes in this early church community. He says they don't commit adultery. They don't, they don't give in to their lust. They don't do the things that they just want to do simply because they want to do them or just because they feel them or because it's natural to them. They don't, they don't do that. They don't live in fornication. They don't lie or steal goods that haven't been entrusted to them. They show love to their neighbors. They love justice and they pronounce judgments that are also just. They don't do to another what they, wouldn't have, what they would not wish to have done to themselves. They don't eat food that's sacrificed to idols because they're pure. They speak gently to people who oppress them, and in this way they make them their friends. It's become their passion to do good to their enemies. Any male or female servants, I love this, whom individuals among them once had, they persuade to become Christians because of the love that they feel towards them. And here it is. When they do become believers, they become brothers to them without discrimination. And he goes on and he simply says, though they come from many different places, they now live together in peace and they always look to the good of the other. This, O emperor, is the rule of life of the Christians and this is their manner of life. And what I love about this letter is that shortly after he turns this thing in, Aristides gives his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he goes on to become one of the leaders in the early church. Church, I'm telling you, like it is intoxicating when you see this kind of unity in a diverse body of believers. Like it is captivating when you see this kind of grace not only sung about, not only received, but also lived out. And people all around you that have nothing else in common except for the fact that you've been covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing to see when believers come together in unity. So I just want to show you how this entire thing wraps up. But it says here at the end of the chapter, just the apostles go on and they, they write this letter to everybody sharing their verdict. And they simply just say, okay, salvation really is by God's grace alone, through faith alone in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this letter, they asked both the Gentile converts to give deference to some of the Jewish believers, and they asked the Jewish believers to give deference to some of the Gentile believers. And then it says, as they gathered everyone together, they read it out loud. And it says in verse 31, when they read it all out loud, the people rejoiced because of the encouragement. And church, quite honestly, that is my hope for us today, that you and I would rejoice because of the grace that has been lavished upon us through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that we would be a church that is united by that grace and united by the call to freely give that grace away, right? Or to consider the good of another and to do whatever it is we can do to help people know that grace. And my hope and my prayer is that that would be true of our church body today, especially in the middle of a pandemic, especially in, the, in, in, the, in light of these news headlines and stuff, which many of us, you may not understand or anything like this. We would be united by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be able to freely give it away, that people, we would not make it difficult for people to come and understand God's grace. So I want to pray for that today. But Father, I do uh, praise you and I thank you that you have covered us because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God, you didn't, you didn't make the requirement law. God, you saw that we were incapable of satisfying the holy requirements of the law. And so, Father, you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so, Father, you lived the life we couldn't live, and you died the death we were supposed to die, that our sin brought upon us. God, and you offered us life 
through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we praise you, we worship you today. And Lord, I just pray right now that you would do a work that unifies this local body of believers here at Dallas Bible Church, that we would be united by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, that we would be so fixated upon the grace that's found in you. God, that that grace would overflow, that we would be able to freely give it away, that we would not be a people that make it difficult for other people to see this grace. And so Jesus, would you come and would you unite us today? And God, uh, we just want to tell you that we love you. God, may your church grow. May your church expand in the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of fear, in the middle of uncertainty, in the middle of tension, in the middle of division. God, would you come and would you build something beautiful in the end? And so, Lord, we just want to tell you we love you one more time. We praise you. We thank you this day. And it's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen.